millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. It's all working out so well in Iraq. Isn't it, Mr. Blair? Tony Blair, who's on television, radio, and on our front pages every single day, telling us that Brexit is bad for us, and more importantly, going to Brussels actively to undermine the British government's negotiating position with Brexit, is the man that brought us the Iraq that is currently on fire. More than 100 people have been killed. More than 6,000 people have been wounded in less than a week of live firing from the security services of the government, at least at the time of broadcasting, of Abdul Mahi. Prime Minister Abdul Mahi is a weak prime minister. That's part of the reason why he was installed in power. I shall try in the time available to me to explain the different forces that are at work on the streets of Iraq, not just Baghdad, not just Basra, but in many parts of the country, hitherto untouched by anti-government militancy. But it's fair to say that whatever else was ushered in by the Bush and Blair invasion and occupation of Iraq, it has all turned out to be an unmitigated disaster. More than a quarter of all the young people in Iraq are unemployed. In a country rich in oil and gas, the lights don't go on for much of the time for much of the population. The damage from the war, from shock and awe, has not been repaired. The state and its foreign patrons live like kings in the green zone beyond, they hope, the wrath of the population. There is mass poverty in Iraq. All these years after Bush and Blair invaded it to bring it a new era, of liberty, democracy, and prosperity. So, despite my differences with the government in Baghdad, I've got to say I hold the British and American governments primarily responsible for the devastation of a country that was once one of the richest countries in the world, that had the highest number of PhDs studying abroad of any Arab country the only Arab country to have a science base. That was the whole basis of the invasion of Iraq in the first place. Iraq has been beggared, devastated, and destroyed by the brigands of the so-called international community, who turned out actually to be George W. Bush and Tony Blair and one or two islands of misfortune who are beholden to them. So 
what's happening in Iraq? The government has utterly failed to come to grips with economic crisis, despite oil production in Iraq being at an all-time high, as high as it was in the 1970s when Iraq was at its most prosperous. Corruption is absolutely rife. The corruption goes from the top like the fish, everything rots from the top, but it goes right down to policemen on the beat, on the traffic lights, to officials of all kinds who are shaking down the population and the population are mad as hell and they're not going to put up with it anymore. It cuts across sectarian boundaries, the rioting, protesting and gunning down of demonstrators is happening in Baghdad, in Shia and Sunni areas. It's happening in Basra, in overwhelmingly Shia areas. It cuts across all, at least, of the Arab population of Iraq. But that isn't to say that there is no foreign meddling in the affair. There's no doubt that there is. One of Abdel Mahi's great crimes has been to talk to Russia about buying Russian military equipment. Another of Abdel Mahdi's great crimes has been to oppose the sectarian projects of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and both of those countries using the media power that they have purchased, that they have been allowed, even encouraged to purchase, are fanning the flames in Iraq. One of the likely consequences of the disaster of the last seven days is that Iran will once again be blamed. Blamed as Iran was for the disaster of Saudi and UAE policy in Yemen. And indeed, if I begin to list all the disastrous foreign policies, never mind domestic, of the tyrannies in the Middle East, particularly Saudi Arabia, it would take me all night to do so. But their hand is there in events in Iraq because trouble in Iraq means more trouble for Iran, means more isolation of Iran. Although I've got to say, Iranian foreign policy looks like it's coming good on the Donald Trump track. Let me turn to him now for a minute. We'll be talking shortly to one of the finest writers in America and working for one of the finest outfits, Grey Zone. And the reality is that Donald Trump is in mortal danger of an impeachment motion being passed by the American House of Representatives. That does not mean he will be impeached. He said this week that it would be almost a civil war act to impeach him, to try to remove him from office and not allow him to contest the next presidential election. Well, I know this will disappoint some of you, but I've got to say that Donald Trump is right. It would be absolute madness to try and unhorse the John Wayne of contemporary American politics because Donald Trump has at least 38%, maybe 40% popular support in the United States. And they've almost all got guns. 
So it would be very, very foolish indeed. As to whether there's any substance to the current Ukraine gate attack on Trump, I have to tell you my view, there absolutely is not. In fact, in any normal polity, the person on the rack right now about Ukraine would be Joe Biden, because just before his teeth shot out in the presidential debate the other day, it was revealed that Donald Trump had indeed asked the new president of the Ukraine to investigate malfeasance and corruption by previous administrations of the United States of America. Well, what's wrong with that? Would you prefer to cover up corruption in the Obama White House? Obama, Clinton, and Biden were up to their necks in blood and treasure in the Ukraine. I just looked before I came on the air. Which country do you think in the whole wide world gave more money to the Clinton Foundation than any other? Yes, you guessed it, the Ukraine. What was it that first attracted the Ukrainian people to the Clinton crime family? Well, of course, it was in part payment for services rendered. If it were not for the Clinton crime family and their successor, Barack Obama's administration, then the coup in the Ukraine would never have happened. The parliament would never have been set on fire. The president would never have been sent fleeing for his life. The Russian language would not have been relegated from the list of official languages in the state. The eastern part of the Ukraine would not have had to break away from the central government in Kiev. Crimea would still be a part of the Ukraine. All of these are consequences of the Obama administration's foreign policy towards the Ukraine. And then there's the small matter of Joe Biden on tape, lips moving, pictures and sound, boasting that he threatened, threatened the government of Ukraine that if they did not sack their own state prosecutor, that they would not receive the $1 billion loan guarantee that the government had promised them. And the only way to avoid that economic catastrophe was for the Ukrainian government to sack their chief prosecutor. Now, what was it that first attracted the attention of Vice President Joe Biden to the state prosecutor in Ukraine, many thousands of miles away? Well, it couldn't be that that state prosecutor was investigating a company on which Joe Biden's son sat on the board of directors, a position he landed just days after being cashiered for using crack cocaine from the US military. We'll be talking to Ben Norton, one of the great sages of American journalism, about that very shortly indeed. I want to turn to Brexit. I want to turn to Boris Johnson, who's in deep trouble, but not over Brexit. As a matter of fact, 
Brexit might be the only thing that can save him. He's on a sticky wicket, if you'll forgive the rather um, colourful pun, with his friendship with a pole dancer from America, a woman that he took on three official business trips abroad, though she had no case for being on the aeroplane. And indeed, it was advised by his officials that she should not be on the aeroplane. Boris Johnson was visiting her Shoreditch apartment, she says, for technology lessons, which has given rise to a new euphemism. When I worked at Private Eye, the euphemism for illicit sexual relations was Ugandan affairs. I was discussing Ugandan affairs, said the miscreant. Well, it seems that Boris Johnson was visiting this young woman regularly to discuss technology and indeed to receive technology lessons. What the RAM rate was, what the hard disk, or was it a floppy disk, looked like? Well, we can only speculate. But when it turned out that the young woman, with no visible means of support for her technology startup company, received no less than £136,000 of British taxpayers' money, a very great many alarm bells began ringing. And they may ring Boris Johnson all the way out of office. But of course, the real reason why they want Boris Johnson out of office is not his hard disk, but his determination, if necessary, to bring about a hard or clean break Brexit. That's what they really can't stand. The British establishment, the British elite, the vast majority of the millionaires in Britain and all of the billionaires in Britain are absolutely determined, like Mr Blair, to wreck Brexit. And they fear that Boris Johnson might not go to Brussels and ask for an extension at the European Council in just actually a few days' time from now. What's going to happen on Brexit? Are we leaving? If we don't, what will the consequences be? Can Britain be sanguine that the kind of events that occur every Saturday in France cannot possibly spread here? I'm not so sure, although the British are not the French when it comes to street protests, if you know what I mean. Certainly the people of China and of Hong Kong, a province of China, are now in no doubt what the whole game is in Hong Kong. The metro station is right now on fire. It's right next, by the way, to the largest mosque in Hong Kong. Policemen are being attacked with knives, with guns, with Molotov cocktails, with anything, any weapon that comes to hand in the increasingly violent demonstrations in Hong Kong, which reached their apogee on the 70th anniversary of the foundation of the Chinese People's Republic, the victory of the People's Liberation Army 
and the declaration by Chairman Mao that the Chinese people have stood up. In a quite clearly choreographed series of events, the protesters in Hong Kong, with the foreign backers standing resolutely behind them, were determined to rain down Molotov cocktails on China's parade. Did they succeed? Will they succeed? How long will this go on? We'll be talking to China expert Jyoti Bra about that pretty shortly too. I've said my piece on the Ukraine. It's better if we now talk to someone who knows a great deal more about matters Americana than me because he is one of the finest writers in American political journalism today. And he's working for one of the finest outfits. He works as the uh, deputy assistant editor, forgive me, of the Grey Zone project. He is, of course, Ben Norton. And he joins us now, I hope, on Skype. Ben. Absolutely, I'm here. Thanks for having me. It's always welcome, a pleasure to be here. Welcome, welcome to the show. Before I turn to Donald Trump, can I ask you to say something about the current condition of Bernie Sanders and whether you think uh, the heart problems that he... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Suffered pains in the chest taken to hospital, an operation, whether that's going to debilitate his presidential run. No, I think if you if you listen to what Bernie said after leaving the hospital, if you listen to his campaign, it's pretty clear that he's still going strong, that, you know, he's, he's pretty old and does have some health issues, as anyone his age would. But actually, he's still very insistent that he's going to be running in this presidential election, that he's going to win as actually he tweeted to Donald Trump. He said, I, I look forward to beating you. And actually, the irony of this entire case is that the same corporate media that viciously attacks Bernie Sanders all the time, when it's not ignoring him, and it also frequently simply ignores Bernie whenever he does you know, something that many other candidates aren't doing, like visits with Native American leaders and, and other important actions he's been taking, when he does those things, he's either attacked or ignored. But when he has a heart attack or some kind of heart condition, immediately it's 24-7 coverage. Every corporate media outlet covers it. And they all speculate, Can, is Bernie fit to run? And it just reminds me of the double standard in the 2016 election when Hillary Clinton also had health issues when she passed out at a campaign event. 
And the media response was the exact opposite. The, the media response was, oh, her health condition is exaggerated, her health is fine. Of course, now the same pundits who insisted Hillary Clinton's health was fine are insisting that Bernie Sanders has to drop out because his health isn't. So, no, I, I, have, I have confidence that, that Bernie is, is in adequate health to continue running. And for anyone who's not confident, all I, all I invite you to do is look at a photo that was released by his campaign when Bernie left the hospital. He had his fist raised. In, in solidarity and support. So, yes, I think he's going to continue fighting forward until 2020. And his rivals uh, are obviously circling um, the uh, Biden camp, uh, you would have thought was uh, had enough on its plate, but they obviously saw a potential boon uh, for themselves with uh, Bernie Sanders going down. I didn't see or hear anything from uh, Elizabeth Warren. She'd probably be the main beneficiary if Bernie were now to start to falter, wouldn't she? Absolutely. Elizabeth Warren increasingly is kind of becoming the consensus candidate, where there are elements of the kind of progressive camp and also the neoliberal establishment who control the party. They're coalescing behind Warren and trying to steal some of the energy from the Bernie campaign. There also have been reports that Elizabeth Warren is secretly working behind the scenes with Hillary Clinton. She also has major Hillary Clinton allies like Neera Tandon and others in Washington. And you're right that if, if Bernie were to falter, although again, I, I think we should stress it, I don't think he's going to, but if, if that were to happen, Elizabeth Warren and her camp is going to try to suck up a lot of that energy. But, you know, Elizabeth Warren is not Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren was a Republican in her 30s who voted twice for Ronald Reagan. She, you know, is now trying to brandish her supposed progressive bona fides, but I think we should be pretty skeptical about her. And unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of candidates, but really the only candidate who is actually, I would say, truly committed to fighting for staunch progressive policies is Bernie Sanders. Many of the other, well, at least one of the major candidates. There are some more minor candidates who have good policies, but, but yeah, I mean, Bernie is unfortunately the only game in town. Now, Biden, as I was saying earlier, uh, in any sane polity, the big question about Joe Biden would not be whether President Trump asked the president of Ukraine to see if he'd been up to no good. It would be on whether Vice President Biden, as he then was, had been up to no good. So let's switch to what we can now call Ukraine Gate. We've had Russia Gate hysteria for well over two years. Explain to the listeners and viewers, please, what is it about the Ukraine Gate that's got the Democratic Party leadership believing they can impeach him? Well, this is the ultimate irony, George, and I'm glad you mentioned it, that for two, more, nearly three years now, the neoliberal Democratic Party leadership has been obsessed with this conspiracy of Russiagate, that Trump supposedly colluded with the Kremlin to win the election. Of course, this was a convenient excuse to cover up the fact that Hillary Clinton was the second most unpopular, the second most unpopular presidential candidate in U.S. history after Trump. You know, she was widely hated by many people in the working class, by many people on the left. So they use this Russiagate distraction, right? And now that after the Mueller report fell through, the FBI special counsel Robert Mueller was unable to find any actual evidence 
after two years of investigation. So now that Russiagate has fallen through, the Democrats have simply gone next door, ironically, to one of Russia's main adversaries, Ukraine, which is currently fighting a kind of low-intensity war with Russia, and now they're accusing Trump of colluding with Ukraine. So Ukraine Gate is Ukraine Gate is in many ways just the kind of same conspiracy, but just applied to a different country. The idea is that Trump was colluding with this foreign power, this time Ukraine, and specifically the new president Zelensky, to try to encourage a corruption inquiry into one of Trump's main adversaries, Joe Biden. Now, the other ultimate irony of this is that this is an actual case of real provable corruption. And we can talk about that, but the Biden family is really, and not just the Biden family, other parts of the Democratic Party are really implicated in serious corruption and scandals in Ukraine. So the irony of this whole affair is that not only did Russia get completely backfire against the Democrats and help Trump, they've actually moved to another scandal that is also very likely going to backfire once again and hurt the Democrats and help Trump by exposing real corruption among Democratic Party leadership. Well, we, we have actually seen and heard footage of Joe Biden boasting uh, that he used the threat of uh, a, a billion-dollar loan guarantee uh, to the then-Ukrainian president uh, if he didn't sack his chief prosecutor. Now, what would interest the vice president of the United States in the chief prosecutor of Ukraine? Well, that's only explicable uh, with reference to that chief prosecutor's investigation of Joe Biden's son's company, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And this is the ultimate irony, again, of this whole scandal, is that the corporate media outlets reporting on this story, Ukraine Gate, are saying, well, ignore what Trump was looking into. Just ignore that. Instead, we need to impeach Trump because he colluded with Ukraine to get dirt on Biden and try to get Biden investigated for corruption. The corruption is real, though. And what they were trying to investigate is that Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, who is also notorious for his own problems, his own drug addiction, you know, he's got a lot of other problems, but we won't get into that. Hunter Biden was rewarded with a sinecure on a Ukrainian gas company sitting on the board of directors and being paid 50,000 US dollars per month. So more than half a million dollars per year just for sitting on the board of this Ukraine gas company. Hunter Biden is not a gas specialist. He knows nothing about fossil fuels. The only qualification he had is that his father was the vice president. And then, of course, something we haven't even mentioned yet is that his father and the, the Obama administration were also deeply involved in the right wing coup that ousted Ukraine's previous government, which was not necessarily a kind of puppet of NATO and the EU, and installed an extremely pro-NATO, pro-EU regime in a 2014 military coup that was once again backed to the hilt by the Obama administration and Vice President Biden. And immediately after this coup in early 2014, several months later, that is when Hunter Biden was given the sinecure on this Ukrainian gas company's board, being paid half a million dollars for a year for basically doing nothing. So this is just scratching the surface of not just the Democratic Party, but the, the kind of U.S. national security state, the elite's involvement 
in this extremely corrupt affair in Ukraine, ousting an elected government, installing a corrupt regime, and then enriching themselves. And, and by looking further into the story, like once again, the Democrats are really risking the possibility of this blowing up in their face and exposing their own corruption. Well, as an old Chinese saying, sometimes the enemy struggles mightily to lift a huge stone, only to drop it on their own feet. And this <laughs> seems to me such an obvious a blowback. I'm going to go a bit left field here, Ben. Is it possible that the Democratic establishment have inflated this issue, in fact, to damage Biden, to put him out of the race on behalf, say, of Elizabeth Warren? I'm not so sure about that. There's still major big money behind Biden. But I think the thing is, that's certainly a possibility. But I actually think what's really going on is that Nancy Pelosi, who's been pushing a lot, uh, she's really the leader of this new impeachment inquiry. Nancy Pelosi was in a difficult situation politically because there were elements of the Democratic Party who were pushing for impeachment and others who were wary, warning that a, a failed impeachment proceeding could actually help Trump. And, and I actually agree with that analysis. Mm. So Nancy Pelosi was being pressured and looking for a reason to try to impeach Trump. And then, of course, come, here comes this CIA whistleblower. The, the whistleblower we now know, we have confirmation, was in the CIA. We also know that this whistleblower, who is the one who first talked about this Ukraine scandal, also did not actually see the direct evidence, that this whistleblower was citing evidence coming firsthand from other, secondhand, rather, from other officials. So there is definitely something much to scrutinize here in terms of the, the chain of evidence. And then finally, the other point to make is that Nancy Pelosi and Democratic Party leadership, and certainly the CIA elements who are pushing, you know, pushing this impeachment attempt, many of them are actually invested in preventing impeachment over Trump's real crimes. And this reminds me of the anti-war activism that many of us were involved in during the Bush era where there were many people on the left pushing for impeachment proceedings against George Bush for the illegal invasion of Iraq, which killed one million Iraqis. And many of us were told, oh, that's not reasonable. And similarly today, there are many impeachable offenses that Trump is carrying out. The genocidal war in Yemen, his strong support for the Saudi dictatorship, uh, him, him putting children in privatized concentration camps on the southern border. I mean, there's just so many things. The war in Syria. But instead of actually talking about these impeachable offenses, they're dealing with this, this scandal that, that only implicates fellow elites because they know, just as Watergate was an example of this, they know that if they actually go after Trump for his real crimes, that that would implicate both parties both of the elites that are from both corporate parties. So it's, it's helpful to look back at, back at Watergate. Remember, Watergate was not about Nixon's crimes against humanity in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, or any of his, his most egregious crimes. It was about the fact that he tried to get his party elites to go against other party elites. So this is an inter-elite battle, and Ukraine is the new battlefield where there's this kind of discussion of corruption without discussion of the, the key serious crimes that they're all implicated in. There's no way, finally, Ben, that it will succeed, is there? Uh, I'm not even so sure uh, that they'll put it to a vote in the House itself. And it certainly has no possibility of breaking into the Republican senators in sufficient numbers, at least, 
to get the two-thirds majority that would be required? There's no way it's going through the Senate. Even if it goes through the House, it's going to be a symbolic vote, and it's going to be a symbolic vote leading up to the 2020 election. Everything happening right now is about the 2020 election, and it's about trying to put the fire on Trump. And the thing is, there are those of us on the left who say, you know, we should criticize Trump for his actual crimes, even if that implicates Democratic Party elites. But the Democratic Party elites leading up to 2020, they don't want to have that discussion because it exposes their own crimes and their own corruption. Instead, they want to make it all a media circus focusing on this Ukraine gate scandal and putting the fire on Trump. So Trump feels the burn leading up to the 2020 election, and he's distracted and wasting his time with this circus of impeachment proceedings. But all I'll say is, I don't want to say I told you so again, as we, as we said, after Russiagate fell through. But unfortunately, I have a feeling that in a year from now, when the impeachment proceedings completely fall through and Trump is actually empowered by this, that it proves his narrative that there's a witch hunt against him, I, 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 guess, I guess we'll all have to say I told you so again, because the Democratic Party elites again and again and again are dropping that stone on their foot, as you said, George. Ben Norton of the Grey Zone Project, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, we'll talk about uh, Ginger Baker later uh, when I tell you I'm up to his part of the world in January. But just before the break, we were talking about the events in China, in Hong Kong in particular. I gave my point of view. Uh, my guest this evening will give hers. But that's not the uh, final word. The final word can be yours. So make sure you hit the phones and the tweets. You can even Skype us, uh, although fewer uh, people are doing that than we anticipated. Thank you very much. By the way, this is not product placement. This is not Yorkshire tea. Yorkshire tea are not paying me to drink out of this mug. And as a matter of fact, I never drink Yorkshire tea. This is Redbush tea in a Yorkshire tea mug. Let me take a sip before introducing my esteemed guest. She once travelled all the way from London to Gaza with me and a very fine travelling companion she was. She's Jyoti Bra. She's a pro-China activist. She's one of Britain's uh, leading communists. She writes and speaks. In fact, she's just brought her latest pamphlet uh, to give me. Uh, she writes and speaks brilliantly. She's an admirable uh, cadre of the Communist Party, but she is here to talk about China. Jyoti Brar, thanks very much for coming on the show. Do you think I summed up earlier uh, what's really going on here? Um, except I'd add this caveat. It's quite clear that there's a sufficiently large number of people in Hong Kong, alienated from uh, the uh, Chinese state and its leading force, uh, the Communist Party of China, to sustain what is now quite a long uh, period of attrition out on the streets, where it's getting really very dangerous and violent. So I fully uh, concur with your uh, summary that you made earlier. Um, I think what we have to be really clear about is that the leadership, the inspiration for this movement is not local. It's very, very clear that this guy, Joshua Wong, 
I feel a bit like with Juan Guaido, very forgettable guy, right? Who is he? This, he is not the inspiration for this. He is a front guy. He is a young man who was picked up as a 17-year-old student during the umbrella protests, which were also organized from outside. We see him everywhere, photographed with every enemy of the people, every friend of imperialism, every proxy for imperialism around them. He's been photographed with the white helmets. He's been photographed with Maidan coup people from the Ukraine. You know, he, he is friends with every one of Washington's coup plotters around the world. Um, it's clear that the funding, the instruction, the arming, um, and the organization for this movement is coming from outside. You know, USA has become very adept at setting up innocuous sounding organizations. They used to do it directly through the CIA. It got embarrassing, they got exposed, they got caught with their hands dirty too many times. Now we have the National Endowment for Democracy. It sounds lovely. The reality is it's the CIA with a new name and they perform the same functions. And it's very clear that Joshua Wong and the people like him are being trained by this CIA front to operate against China. They're, they call them NGOs, but in fact they are FGOs, foreign government organizations. Exactly. Uh, I was there once uh, when Fidel Castro uh, developed his thesis that NGOs uh, were a Trojan horse uh, sent in by the enemy uh, to look nice look nicer than the CIA would have looked. And that's true of these NGOs in Hong Kong also, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. Oh, they perform an extremely insidious role. They are another wing of imperialism, um, performing um, you know, the same functions with a different mask. And it's just a PR job, isn't it? Look at the white helmets. They're a PR front for a jihadi mercenary army. Um, but it works very well when you have... Well, you get an Oscar for it. When you have the... Yeah, right. When you have the imperialist media who control so much of how we view the world, um, amplifying and endorsing and reinforcing the message of what these people are, it, it plays well. It's a, it's a script. And they all follow it. And there's no space on any of the airwaves for anybody who is willing and able to expose what's happening. So it's very difficult for ordinary people to understand that they're being fed a line, that it's basically a Hollywood script and it's a well-rehearsed playbook. You know, these colour revolutions that the, you talked about that earlier, they roll them out around the globe constantly. I mean, if we look right now, it's very early days. It, all the signs are they're trying to provoke a new one in Iraq right now. Yeah, I spoke about that earlier. Um, Let's stick to Hong Kong, though. Yeah. Um, how serious a challenge is this uh, to the central government in Beijing? Uh, the big day was, on the face of it, an ex a great success. It was a very impressive ceremony in Tiananmen Square. But, of course, the uprising of protest in Hong Kong was designed to uh, rain on the, their parade, uh, raining Molotov cocktails and every other 
uh, kitchen sink that they could throw. Did it succeed in spoiling China? How serious a challenge is this to China? Well, I don't think in China it succeeded in raining on the parade. Certainly, I'm sure people in China are concerned. I think the longer the protests go on, the less sympathy people in most of China, but even in Hong Kong, yeah, have. Yeah, so there's a lot of backlash in Hong there's Kong. There's a big now, backlash. Yeah. But, you know, throughout most of China, there's increasing bewilderment at how what these people think they're doing and also how they've managed to develop such a um, split personality. I mean, they've been indoctrinated and, you know, clearly British and US intelligence agencies have been at work for a while developing this idea of a kind of superiority of Hong Kong to the rest of China. Reality is that Hong Kong is falling behind the rest of China right now. You know, it makes much more sense for them to stick with China and go forward. This idea that by separating from China they'll do better is a total delusion. But nevertheless, these kids have been trained with a, some kind of superiority complex. Britain's very good. The imperialists are very good at creating little pockets of people who have privilege. Even superior to some of the other uh, ethnicities in Hong Kong itself. I mean, the whole they parade a kind of racial supremacy, not just over Chinese people uh, as a whole, but even some of their own neighbours in Hong Kong. But, you know, as a... As a um, Chinese reporter said to me recently, who do they think they are? The idea that they're racist against Chinese people, but who are they? That they can't understand that they're Chinese. You know, there is no such thing as a Hong Kong nationality. The idea of a Hong Kong national liberation movement is totally delusional. You know, Hong Kong was stolen from China by Britain at the point of a gun, as you've pointed out many times before, George. I don't need to tell it to you, but maybe, you know, repetition is the key to learning. People have to understand this. Hong Kong is China. It was stolen at gunpoint to be a base for pushing drugs on the Chinese people. It was finally and grudgingly returned by Britain in 1997. Britain's still acting as if it's got the right to dictate how Hong Kong should be run and preach to China about democracy in Hong Kong. I mean, anyone who knows anything about the history, it's kind of staggering. Yeah, or oh, the insouciance uh, with which they talk about uh, democracy in Hong Kong is extraordinary, given that we ruled it for 150 years without a scintilla of democracy, freedom, liberty of any kind. Yeah, with nothing. Now, um, let's talk about how China is handling it. Um, on the face of it, uh, although there's now been some kind of state of emergency, the Chinese state is handling it with kid gloves. Uh, every Western journalist who wants to go there and embed themselves with the protesters is there. Mm. They say that China is a totalitarian uh, dictatorship, but it's not acting like one in Hong Kong. Otherwise, all these uh, agents uh, would, would have been kicked out by now. Uh, all these television companies whose purpose is to cause a problem for China not to report the news, because if it was to report the news, they'd all be in Paris, which is, has the benefit of being 27 miles away, as opposed to 6,000 
266 miles away in Hong Kong. So they're there for other purposes, not to report on protests. China's allowing this. Uh, the People's Liberation Army has not been uh, deployed. Uh, the Hong Kong police are handling matters, or not. Uh, and it's getting more and more violent. How long does China continue this approach? And do you think there's a discussion going on inside the Chinese government as to how long this can be permitted to uh, continue in this way? I mean, I'm sure there's a discussion going on, George. But one thing about the Chinese is they are nothing if not discreet. They don't tell you about the debates that they're having internally. And, and they play the long game. Nothing if not patient. <laughs> they are exceptionally patient and thoughtful about what they do. They don't rush to act or rush to judge. They think things through. And they have shown incredible restraint, as you've said. I'm sure that they don't want to give any justification to the imperialists, any further fuel to their propaganda fire um, to be able to go out and say, look, the evil dictatorship is crushing out. We told you it would. I mean, clearly this movement is a provocation. The idea is to prove that um, China is responding with force to try and create, as you said earlier, you know, copycats elsewhere to create a sense across China that the Liberation Army is an anti-people's army, not a pro-people's army, the sense that the state is an anti-people state, not a pro-people state, to try and encourage people anywhere else who might have any kind of discontent that now's a moment to rise up and, you know, mm. fight. Um, Let's take a call, Jyoti, sure. uh, from Wayne in Cheshire. Go ahead, Wayne. Hey, it's always a pleasure, George. Thank you, sir. Go ahead. Uh, I've been watching the Hong Kong situation. And, um, and I, first of all, um, I've been on many demonstrations over, over 40 years myself in this country, in the UK. And I I, first of all, I can't believe how, how these young people in Hong Kong think it any better in the UK or America, which they're asking for help from. And, and if we demonstrated the way they do, oh my God, they would track us down, we'd be blacklisted, never get a job again, probably never get benefits and be in prison for 10 years. Well, that's a fair point, Jyoti, isn't it? That uh, uh, the demonstrators, if they behaved as they are behaving here in England, still more in France, they would be treated in a very different way to how, up till now at least, the Chinese state is treating them. We see this in many countries where imperialism is inspiring and backing protest, that the governments have to be cautious in the way they respond, particularly because they don't want to encourage further attacks by imperialism and they know what can happen with these provocations. They also um, have a different approach to these kind of protests because they are broadly pro-people governments. So they have the mass of the people on their side across China, just similar to what you see in Venezuela, you know. Um, they can afford to be a little more lenient. Whether we would like to see them be a bit less so, a bit more firm in... Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm certainly different. not advocating, you know, shooting people and so on. That would be 
uh, dreadful. It would be, uh, it would make every matter worse. Uh, but I'm not sure that you can stand by and allow your metro station to go up in flames. I mean, where, where next? They've sacked the parliament, they've burned down the metro station, they have made inoperable uh, the uh, airport, all of which are vital to vital organs uh, of, uh, of the economy and society in Hong Kong. Well, something that's interesting, I think, about what's been going on is that um, you see, as the protesters are given more leeway to go their length, they are alienating many sections of Hong Kong society who might previously have been a little or quite sympathetic to them. A lot of business people who worry about you know, moving away from uh, one country, two systems towards being just part of China in the normal way, which is due to happen in sort of 25 years' time, um, and would prefer to just stay fully capitalist and as autonomous as possible um, and not really reintegrate with China, a lot of those people are seeing, this is, this is not what we want. We can't operate this way. Look, they're, they're killing business. They're killing the economy. Um, you know, so in a way, and there's a, there's a school of thought that says by letting people run their length a little bit, they're alienating a yeah, lot of Yeah, I mean, th that's what I thought they were doing for a time, but this has uh, run quite a length. Last word from you, Wayne. And the, the, the main thing for me that stands out, that obviously Hong Kong has got a free press, and they've got the internet and everything. So they seem to really, truly believe that the UK and America is, is, is so much better and so much more freedom than they have at the moment. It amazes me. Jyoti, finally, um, here's my take on this. Despite all the efforts, the British media and indeed the political class, which I think is quite divided on China, have not been able to demonize China in the way that they have demonized others. Uh, for example, you mentioned Venezuela, and indeed this situation is remarkably comparable to Venezuela. Uh, but others that I've, you know, seen and have come and gone, uh, I'm even old enough to remember when Nasser was the, was the new Hitler, uh, and then it was one after the other. Uh, despite their efforts, they haven't managed to make people in Britain hate China, hate the president of China. In fact, most people don't know the name of the uh, president of China, and if they have seen it, they don't know how to pronounce it. So, in other words, the demonization of China has not really been successful. Now, one of the reasons, it seems to me, for that must be that everybody with two brain cells knows that China is doing rather well, that China has made more people prosperous, has taken more people out of poverty than any other system, state, party, government, regime in all of human history. And therefore, an attempt to persuade them that, you know, the, the Chinese government are the new Hitler, hasn't worked, can't work. What do you think? Well, there's two sides to it. One is we get a very divided view of China. So on the one hand, we're told they're responsible for a, the, the decline in our steel industry, although that started a long time before China was producing steel even. Mm -hmm. It's China's fault. 
Um, that's a way to try and turn workers against China. On the other hand, we're told they've got evil, dictatorial, uh, terrible, tyrannical government, and they're all oppressed and miserable. But then these other facts you were talking about, they leak out. China is the country that's doing the most to combat global warming, for example. The, on the one hand, we're told, oh, they're terrible polluters. On the other hand, we get news stories. I read yesterday in, yeah, I did too, yeah. in Forbes about how um, the world has become greener mm. in the last 20 years because of China and India and their massive afforestation programs. You know, or we get information about China bringing so much solar energy online every day that the only real place where climate change is being addressed meaningfully actually in the world is China you know and this kind of information comes out China's the global leader in producing solar panels that's making it a kind of viable technology for people everywhere not just in China um, you know China's the one that's pushing forward in all types of recycling and green technologies I saw someone I was over there in February this year they're really serious about it you know, so we see at the same time they're trying to push this terrible anti-China narrative, other things are coming through. Huawei, this whole thing with Huawei, they try and demonize Huawei and say, oh, it's a terrible, you know, um, breach, spy portal, breach yes. of our security and all the rest of it. But on the other hand, you can't help noticing that China seems to be in charge of 5G. You know, well, you don't get to do that without some serious um, investment in research and development and technology and the fact that China's rising is clear. Yeah, uh, and isn't it also the case that uh, Britain's ruling elite is divided about China because a lot of them would like to do business with China. A lot of them are doing business with China. George Osborne, David Cameron, uh, they were famously pro-China voices in various debates. Even in the British cabinet of Theresa May over the Huawei affair, the cabinet was divided as to whether to follow the American policy of shunning Huawei or at least partially try to incorporate it in 5G development. There's a contradiction, isn't there? On the one hand, you know, business is business and, you know, the ethos of business is to make money and it doesn't really matter who you're making it with. On the other hand, as, as you know, global powers, China's rise is a threat to Britain's position. Britain is coming down, China's coming up, and you know, one is at the expense of the other, that's how they see it. Um, they want to retain their control, the imperialist US Britain, of technology. They want to hold back China's development, but at the same time there's plenty of British businesses who want to use China's technology, so there is a contradiction, definitely. Now, uh, just before you go, you brought me a pamphlet. I um, did, yes. Just to uh, let the viewers see it. It's the drive to war against Russia and China. Good title, good picture. And uh, summarize it in 30 seconds. It's really talking about why it is that Russia and China are targets of our imperialists. Why is it we're seeing this drive towards militarization and hostility towards Russia and China? And what should we, what should our attitude as British workers be towards that? What do we need to do to stop a war breaking out? I've got another call, uh, not, not there yet. Uh, I did see today in the newspapers, uh, funnily enough, in The Guardian, um, The Observer, for the first time, uh, a gap in the Scripple narrative. It turns out that Trump told Theresa May that the US investigations and the US position was that Russia was not actually responsible 
for the attack on the Skripals. Now, we were never told this at the time, and of course it could be of, uh, of considerable moment. I thought I had another caller for you, but I don't. And so, are you getting them up, Chris? Take about a minute. Um, the reality is that Russia, the biggest European country, Moscow, the biggest European city, the Russian economy, despite all these sanctions, is doing really well. China, they, they talk about a fall in growth in China. It's a fall to a number that any other country would give their right arm uh, to uh, achieve. Here's finally uh, Ben in Manchester. Go ahead, Ben. Hello, Josh. Good evening. How are you, mate? Good evening to you. What would you like to say? Um, yeah, Josh, just a quick one about um, Hong Kong yeah. and what's going on over there. Um, yeah. Just a insert about um, the social credit system that China have got going on. Have you heard much about that? I, but I, I, I haven't, but Jyoti definitely will. What would you like to okay, say about excellent. it? Okay, excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah, so basically, um, I've read a bit about what China's doing with the social credit system. Um, so it's like the government will read people's text messages, their shopping habits, what they talk about, and then they'll give people like a rating on it. And then that will dictate if they can get train tickets, plane tickets, what schools that their children can go to. It's quite um, authoritarian. Um, um, so I've read a bit about it and it's not looking too good. So I'd just like to get your guests' views on that really and how she I'm feels sure, that fits into... I'm, I'm sure she will have a point of view on that. Jyoti? Oh my God. I hate to tell you this, George. I have no view. I've not looked into it at all. Uh, uh, neither of us knows uh, anything about this, Ben. Where are you reading well, this? I'd recommend, George, you definitely, if you get any time, definitely look into it. Are you calling quite, it um, social credit? Social credit system, that's yeah. right, George. All right, I'll look it up, Ben, and uh, if I think it's worth it, I'll return to it maybe next week. Is that OK? George, I think it's quite important. It's something that I don't feel Orwell could have dreamt up in his wildest imaginations. And really? As someone that believes in democracy and stuff and freedom uh, of speech, freedom of thought and expression. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't want to talk to me important. about freedom of speech and freedom of expression, would you, Ben? <laughs> uh Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Because, uh, well, because I've been hunted uh, from the very few uh, corners of the mainstream media uh, that I once occupied um, yeah. because of my uh, determination to freely speak and freely express uh, my point of view. So I'm sure you're not saying that Britain and even less so the United States are themselves exemplars of freedom of speech and freedom of expression, are you? Well, not necessarily, but um, I mean, I, I held a horse example... laughing outside. Not necessarily. Not <laughs> necessarily. <laughs> well, have you seen you know... the newsstands? Have you looked at the front pages of all of Britain's newspapers? Have you watched mm. Sky News, BBC News, Channel 4 News, ITV News? Have you watched Mar and Peston? It's one note, Ben. 
one solitary note. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do know that in China that um, the journalists have to pass a test, um, and they can't be journalists unless they pass the government and what test, test. What test do you think the journalists employed by Rupert Murdoch have to pass? Might well, it, I've got no might, idea. Well, I do, so let me tell you. I'll tell you what test they have to pass. The same test as Andrew Marr or Peston or Channel 4 News have to pass. They have to agree to keep their political coverage within the narrow parameters of the prevailing orthodox. And they have to agree to treat anyone outside those parameters as either mad or bad or both. So don't talk to me about journalists having to pass a test because I could show you my scars, Ben. I could <laughs> show you my sackings, Ben, for having a different point of view to the prevailing narrative. However, you have raised a point that neither of us could answer, and I promise you that we will return to that subject uh, next week. Let's hear from Nate in the United States. Nate, welcome. Hello. Yes, go ahead, sir. Yeah, so you have your expert on, and a little bit of echo here, but I uh, have been studying the, the Hong Kong protest. Yeah. And I've been taking on different perspectives and trying to understand multiple sides. And I find it interesting that these Hong Kong protests erupted during a trade war, and the fact that China is so hands-off. Uh, and I, I guess my problem is I don't know how much authority is driven by Hong Kong government. I don't know what the influence of China's government Beijing. I don't know what it's playing into, but it seems to me that it's incredibly hands-off. And I wonder if they've done that cost-benefit analysis that it's better not to engage in Hong Kong versus taking risks, maybe sanctions. I'm just curious about that angle. Yeah, no, it's a very, it's, it's a very, uh, a very good call, Nate, and a very interesting uh, point that you make. Um, as I think Jyoti implied at least earlier, Hong Kong is actually much less important to China now than it was uh, when in 1997 at the time of the handover. Uh, other places in China are booming much more uh, than Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong's economic future uh, actually uh, now looks bleaker than many other parts of China. And uh, instead of asking China to help them catch up, you've got a group of people backed by foreign interest who are doing their best to disrupt and uh, weaken further uh, the Hong Kong uh, economy. But Jyoti, Nate's point is that one of the reasons why China is not cracking down on this now, I don't know how many weeks, must be 20 odd weeks, uh, not doing so because of the trade wars, because a trade deal with the United States uh, may even yet, despite all the static in the atmosphere, within reach. Certainly Donald Trump could do with it in the run-up to the uh, presidential election. Do you think that may be one of the things that 
is present in the debate we've both agreed must be taking place inside the Chinese leadership? There's no doubt that the trade discussions and negotiations are going on in the background all the time, whether or not they're in the headlines. There's also no doubt that the disruption, the pressure that's coming to China via Hong Kong will be being used by the states as a piece in their game to try and, you know, it's, it's a classic te technique. And certainly Trump likes this kind of bargaining, right? All or nothing, you know, like he promised fire and fury to Korea and then the next day he's having a burger or whatever. Um, so they will be using this as a, as a pressure point and it will be one of the reasons that China doesn't want to be gung-ho in its response. Interesting. Nate, thanks uh, very much indeed for that uh, call. Uh, so I'm going to uh, digest your latest uh, pamphlet, The Drive to War Against Russia and China. And uh, I'll report back uh, on uh, how it is. But having read Jyoti's work, having spoken with her, having travelled with her, I'm greatly impressed. I hope you were too. Jyoti Bra, thanks very much for joining us. Now, there is so much to ask you, and the other people are asking you, but I've got a couple of things to ask you first my takeaways from that news bulletin. First of all, how can President Trump survive the fact that not one CIA officer, but two CIA officers are calling him bad names? We've reached a situation where an organization that when I was first coming into politics was regarded as absolutely heinous its name written in blood, namely the CIA, is now prayed in aid by liberals and commentators and so on as if they were, I don't know, guardian angels or something. Mm. Um, what do you make of CIA officers blowing the whistle on uh, their own president? If ever you needed confirmation, that there was a deep state mm. and there was an elected state, that's the confirmation, isn't it? Absolutely right. I mean, the ironies with this keep getting better or worse, depending on one's perspective, <laughs> every week. Last week, it was the insane specter of Trump being exonerated of collaborating with Russia, only to be accused by the exact same people of collaborating with Russia's worst enemy, the Ukraine. <laughs> and now we've got a situation where a man who famously has had some gaffes about Mexico uh, being under threat from more CIA agents than the average Latin an American president. You ought to call him El Trump Piñata. Um, <laughs> but what it does show is that what would be called treason in any normal circumstance, the CIA, whose job is, in theory, we all, you, you adumbrated the practice, but in theory, it's supposed to be defend the Constitution, defend the president, all the rest of it, and they've really gone rogue. The CIA used to overthrow rogue states. Now they've gone rogue in their own state. And it, it gets worse than that because the, the entire substance of it is just totally ridiculous. All he did was actually fulfill his job. I mean, why would an, organiza an organization like Interpol, International Police, why would it exist if states didn't talk to each other about areas of mutual interest when it comes to law and order? So it's really 
it's, it's frankly disgusting, but it's going to play into his hands because Trump's never been one for detail. And now instead of talking about policies or about his record, the entire thing is going to be us versus them. The deep state and the Democrats and all of their friends in the media versus me, the man of the people. I said before Ukraine Gate existed, way back all three weeks ago when Russia Gate still existed, that I think he's going to win. I think this is going to play into his hands. Trump likes to play rough. And what's funny is he's almost like a Tammany Hall-style East Coast Democrat who likes to roll his seat. There's nothing he won't say. I mean, he said, I mean, if I think that if there was a national swear jaw in the United States, you could maybe solve the debt crisis, all the, all the F and C and A bombs he's been dropping on Twitter, but you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get more and more. Okay, my other takeaway was... Uh about the American entrepreneur she is now. <laughs> I called her a pole dancer earlier. But I don't she's think now... she's Polish. <laughs> no, she's now, a dancer, maybe. Now we're asked to believe she's an entrepreneur, even though she doesn't have two hapenies to rub together. All of the companies that she's founded are either defunct or owing hundreds of thousands of pounds stroke dollars. Uh, an entrepreneur... Uh, a blonde with a Shoreditch apartment with a pole in it on which she danced. Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, was attending her in the aforementioned Shoreditch apartment for technology lessons. He was taking her on aeroplanes that she had no right to be on, and it's alleged that he influenced people to give her very large sums of public money. These, this is genuine potential malfeasance, isn't it? Well, we're going to have to make a new film. Blondes prefer right honourable gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> what a good line. I wish I'd said that. You will, Adam. you will. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it smells like a scandal, but the aftertaste, if you'll pardon the entendre, is that of one that the people I don't really think care about. People knew before Bojo got in, they knew that he isn't a choir boy, so to speak. Um, they, and oh, people... the bunking, you're right, but the, but the bucks. Yeah, that's, that's where the actual issue Never comes mind. in. And I Never think... mind what rhymes with bucks. What rhymes with <laughs> Bucks, <laughs> people so. can live with. Yes. But the bucks, public bucks, that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, yeah, absolutely. It was just another one of the useless bailouts that various levels of government have been done, even though, unlike bailing out Northern Rock and the rest of them, I think he may have gotten something in return. So, if anything, it means he's a be slightly better businessman than Gordon Brown. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, look, lastly. Ginger Baker, yes. rest in peace, uh, a very controversial man. Uh, what was he like as a drummer? Well, when he started out, he was really on top of his game. Sadly, the drugs over the years and the ailments that mainly stemmed from that started to whittle that down. But one of his great contributions to Western sort of jazz and rock percussion was that he had the sensibilities of a Western man who was very much at ease with the African drum idiom. The way that I would describe that is, in your traditional jazz or rock band, you're either swinging or riding on a cymbal, a hi-hat, or a ride cymbal. And cymbals are, of course, an Asian invention, where in Africa, the great drumming tradition is based
based on membranophones, the actual drum. He would keep time. He would use the, the sort of percussive language, the lexicon, of the African membranophones. So he'd be keeping time on the tom-toms in addition to doing his fills. And that was something very unique at the time, even though Phil Seaman, the great jazz drummer, had a bit of that. Ginger brought it into a different style of music. Since then, I don't know if any drummer who's been on as many popular records has really pursued that style. So in terms of the annals of percussion, that's his greatest legacy. No, he, he was, uh, of course, debilitated by drugs. So the, yes. the band members were, were Eric Clapton, Jack, uh, Bruce and Ginger Baker. Only one still alive, only Eric. Only Eric is yeah. still alive. And he was, of course, badly damaged by substance abuse and alcoholism. Yes, and he got so out in time, though. He, he cleaned himself out fairly uh, early on. Time. Here's a question on the line from Richard in Manchester. Go ahead, Richard. Uh, good evening, Mr. Galloway, and good evening, Adam. Thank you very much for taking my call. Good You're welcome. George, this is a desperate situation over the next few weeks in this country. I've studied this for three years now, and um, uh, the, the Blairite, uh, the Lord Faulkner's, uh, the Lord Adonis's, um, Alastair Campbell, and all the people like Dina Miller, who admitted to taking uh, Soros uh, uh, money through what she's done in the Supreme Court. I often wondered how, how, how on earth she got the money together, because when you read her history, it's not very good as far as finance is concerned. And now we're looking at 17.4 million, the old thing that we've been looking at for three years, people voted to leave the EU. It, we, democracy is the thing that is at stake for this country. Never mind the unelected people in Europe who want our money, and I'm sure that's all they do want. We, you and uh, Nigel Farage and uh, a lot of people are teaching us things that we never knew. My father was a coal miner. We had no money. We had no food. We had nothing. I've heard you talk about China tonight. A fantastic country to visit, George. I've visited it many times. It's a wonderful country. We are way behind them in what we're doing. And these people come forward, George, say that they're going to stop Brexit at any cost no matter what we do, and then they come up with laws that they put from 1868 or whatever, I think it's an absolute disgrace to the intelligence of people in this country. And if we don't get out quickly, we will never get out because they'll close all the doors in the Supreme Court to act against the people. I well, I don't know. I, I, thanks, Richard. Very powerful uh, indeed. Uh, but I... I I'm not sure that you're correct on your last point. The genie is out of the bottle. The EU looks even uglier, much uglier, oh. in 2019 than it looked in 2016. People are woke to the reality of the EU more than they were in 2016. Of that, I'm absolutely sure. In 2016, virtually nobody knew who these gangsters operating in Brussels even were, didn't know their names, didn't know their habits, didn't know their predilections. Now, millions of people know intimately. We've got social media now in 2019 at a much higher level even than we had in 2016. We've got programs like this, the mother of all talk shows. People are vastly greater 
informed about the ugliness of the European Union in 2019 than even they were in 2016. Adam, um, Richard's point, I, I, I don't know if they'll succeed in stopping us leaving on the 31st of October. They may. Uh, I no longer debate with people the merits of Brexit or otherwise because that debate is over. That vote was cast and counted and I won. Yes. And people like me won. And the only thing that matters to me now is that democracy is upheld, that democracy is practiced, not just preached, because I fear for the danger in the short, medium and long term to British politics, to British democracy, of a successful attempt to stymie, to borrow a phrase, the decision that we made in 2016. They talk about, and it might happen, a government of national unity. Someone mentioned Orwell earlier. Mm. That would be the ultimate Orwellian. Black is white, war is peace, and so on, wouldn't it? Because yes. how could you have a government of national unity which excluded the 52% and governed in the name of and in the interests of the 48%, if indeed they still are yes. 48%. Richard seems a bit pessimistic uh, to me, because if we don't leave on the 31st of October, I have no doubt that one day we will leave. Yes, I, I tend to agree. And, and Nigel Farage himself, like me, doesn't think that it's going to happen on the 31st, even though Boris is making such a song and dance about saying that it will happen on the 31st that one he must, must have something believe. up his sleeve. He must. I mean, otherwise, this would be bluffing in the most high stakes poker that one has ever seen, unless he's got this ace in the pack, which maybe he does. And I'm sure we can talk about that now. We can talk about it for the the next four weeks. Yeah. Um, but I do think that it's inevitable because these opposition groups, these opposition parties, they don't speak for the majority of people who voted in the 2016 referendum. They don't speak to the majority of people who want to get on with life and return to some form of normalcy. And what's perhaps the most Orwellian, they call themselves people who aspire to form a government of national unity. They can't even unite among themselves. No. They have no leader. They disagree over who should be the leader. And I think right now, th their squib has become very damp when it was, it was shown over the last week that they can't really decide on who is going to be the person to defenestrate Boris Johnson on their side. The thing to watch, I suppose, most closely in the next three weeks is Boris versus Boris. What's he going to do? Is he going to play a strong royal prerogative card? Is he going to send two letters and hope that the EU agrees with him on which one negates the other? Is he going to have Hungary or some other EU country um, do, uh, do Britain a favour by putting the veto in? And let me just say, while I don't think the Hungarian option is incredibly realistic, it could be, those wheels could be lubricated by American money because Orban and Trump get on very well. Trump has quietly built a lot of allies in Eastern Europe. Poland, very close to Trump. Um, Hungary, very close to Trump. The Czechs and the Slovaks. So 
Trump, who has a very keen interest in Brexit, he said so himself, could be the Trump card in the Hungary thing. I still don't think it likely, but no one's really mentioned that, and maybe we shouldn't. It's a blinding uh, observation, I must say. Because I thought of that. I mean, he's Trump is one person that can have a conversation with Boris and with Orban, and the only people who will know about it are probably Dominic Cummings and everyone at the CIA. But, <laughs> 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 okay, let's go to line two. Albert is in Hawaii. Go ahead, Albert. How I wish I were in Hawaii. <laughs> Hi, George. How are you? How Very are you doing? well. By the grace of God, good. Thanks. What would you like to say? All right. Well, I, I'm, I'm interested in talking a little about media. Uh, you mentioned a little about the BBC and, and a lot of the papers there earlier on in the program. Yeah. And I'm a retired freelance journalist. I was a journalist for 22 years, print journalist. Mm -hmm. And... I'm curious about the media there in the. Oh. I'm curious there about the. Let's try and get the back media to there in the. Yeah, go. Uh, let's try and get a better line, Albert, because this sounds like a very interesting question indeed. Uh, so our people will try to get back to you, Marie McFarlane, my old friend in Scotland. Hope she's coming to East Kilbride to indeed. see us. Adam, do you think we will have left the EU by 31st of October? If I said that, I'd be at Ladbrokes right now, rather. Um, I'm sceptical, but Boris has staked his entire career on this. And even though it is true that unlike May, who was a Remainer by name and a Remainer by nature, if somehow Boris says, look at all the slings and arrows that they've thrown at me, forcing me to delay, he would get a bit more for quite a bit more forgiveness for delaying than may would but for someone to be that adamant about something happening unless he wants to go down in history as one of these street preachers who say the world is going to end yeah. on february the 5th yeah. 1984 and then come christmas 1985 no one buys them the present unless he wants to go down in that cloud of infamy he must have something up his sleeve so my my head says there probably will be some sort of extension but listening to boris the emotional pathos that he's driving forward with, maybe we will live, leave on the 31st. Albert, in Hawaii, we've got you back. Uh, I was very interested in the question you were poised to ask, okay. so mm -hmm. kindly proceed. Okay. As I mentioned before, I, I, I was a freelance journalist, print journalist for 22 years, and I've been interviewed on a number of podcasts and radio shows here in the state. Um, what would, might be called new media by some, uh, an alternative media. And what I'm curious about in regards to the UK, because I've never done media in the UK, just in the US here, is the, the differences, not just the differences between the mainstream media in the UK and the new media, but also what differentiates them in terms of coverage of some of the things that you've brought up, like China, like what's going on with Boris Johnson, and not only Brexit, but also his own personal political or personal scandals. Uh, I, I'm curious from that perspective, well, primarily uh, because it's, it's a, it's you're a, someone who has worked in media yeah, yourself. And I've also, and I've you, also got a lot of been, scars. Been could, media uh, you. Oh, but thanks. That's a really interesting uh, question. I, I would uh, put it this way. Uh, as the great Englishman of letters, Dr. Johnson said, the grimmest dictatorship of them all is the dictatorship of the prevailing orthodoxy.
and all of our newspapers are very tightly policed within the parameters of the prevailing orthodoxy. Whether they are uh, the so-called liberal guardian or the so-called conservative telegraph, they all of them fit within very narrow parameters. And their purpose is to tell us that the only thing up for grabs, up for debate, up for decision, is the color of the walls that the Whitehall departments are being painted in, the safety of sandwiches, the proliferation of plastic bags, the narrow parameters that they insist are the only uh, options that are uh, open for debate, open for decision, uh, except for Brexit. It has broken down, though it is entirely fluid. So, for example, for decades, Rupert Murdoch was virulently anti-EU. Now, his two flagship newspapers, The Times and The Sunday Times, are brazenly, openly and extremely dishonestly trying to wreck Brexit on a daily basis and every Sunday uh, on, uh, uh, in the Sunday Times. Now, whether Mr. Murdoch has lost his teeth like Joe Biden or whether he's experienced some change of heart, I don't know. But the prevailing orthodoxy breaks down because in Britain you have the Daily Mail that is pro-Brexit, though not as pro-Brexit as it was 12 months ago. The Mail on Sunday, the same, but even more so. The Sun, Mr. Murdoch's biggest selling, though fast-falling circulation uh, newspaper, shunned by all right-thinking people everywhere, uh, but still uh, quite a considerable uh, seller. Uh, the Guardian is virulently anti-Brexit. The Daily Telegraph, the only paper that is actually reliably, day after day, pro-Brexit. But that is an exception. Brexit is an exceptional matter where the, if I can put it in Marxian terms, the globalizing international bourgeoisie are against Brexit and the patriotic, national, inevitably smaller bourgeoisie leans towards Brexit. Adam, your views? Mm. I think one of the, there's more similarities than dissimilarities between uh, so-called alt-media in Britain and America, but, but the differences are more interesting. Uh, in the beginning, uh, when the internet was created by Al Gore and alt-media became a thing, most of it in America tended to be right-wing and most of it in Britain tended to be left-wing. And there's, there's several reasons for it. In America, ever since talk radio became uh, unregulated by the FCC and the Rush Limbaugh's and the Michael Savages and the others came in, there was a feeling that there was a liberal elite and that it was talk radio AM on the AM dial that was going to, you know, lacerate it. That spilled over into the alt media. Alex Jones is probably the most famous, but there are many others uh, on that side. Uh, some who are scholarly, some who are more sensationalist, and everything in between. 
It happened first in America, and it happened in greater numbers. I suppose the entrepreneurial spirit and all of that, and a, and a larger market. Uh, when it happened in Britain, though, it seemed to happen more from the left, where the the narrative in Britain was that oh, there's a corporate media that's all either centre ground or pro-conservative, and so we're going to be the pro-Corbyn people, the pro to the left of Corbyn people. Now, though, that alt media has almost matured into its next phase there's plenty of right and left from Britain and plenty of especially since Trump that sort of got the the both the liberals who think that the world is going to end in a day and, and the traditional left in America it got them onto alt media where prior to 2016 they would probably mock everyone on alt media as a right winger so those are the differences I've observed they're, they're, they're quite interesting in my view very very interesting oh but you're still there in Hawaii Yes, I still am. Uh, Give us a response quickly. Uh, yeah, um, I, it's interesting because I've been looking to possibly do media in the UK, and you're laying out some of the, the, a great deal of the boundaries there. So I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm more curious about the new media, obviously, yeah. podcasts and radio shows, so forth. Yeah. Well, um, uh, when you uh, eventually come, uh, either physically or merely over the airwaves, uh, you're always welcome, Adam Gary. Adam Kinky says, I remember Cream playing in a hallway of an arena in San Diego in 1966. The band was like five feet from the 30 people gathered around. <laughs> Mostly I remember how deafeningly loud it was. Oh, yes. uh, they did do some great things, Cream, for those of us done certain ash. But they haven't really stood the test of time, have they? Not many people out on the street today. I mean, I make the point that the Beatles are back at number one. Mm. Abbey Road, 50 years on. Well is, deserved. Is number one in the album charts again. That'll never happen with Cream. Well, Cream were only around for a very short period of time from, I believe it was very late 66 into uh, 68. They went up like a rocket, but it was the personnel, particularly Jack Bruce, the enormously talented bassist, vocalist, he could play piano, he started out on cello, he had a voice like a god. Uh, he and Ginger didn't get on, and it, Cream were the, they were the second band that the two of them were in because uh, they played uh, with Graham Bond, the late great organist prior to that. And so, as though they were pressing their luck, they, they hated each other just as much in the Cream as they did prior to that. And that's the real reason... Is that, that why I th that's, that's why I broke, they hated each other. And Eric Clapton could only play Peacemaker for so long. I think certain tracks like Sunshine of Your Love, White Room, um, Badge, which was penned by George Harrison, Eric Clapton's very good friend at the time before a bit of white swapping took place, <laughs> as it does. Um, I think that the music stands the test of time, but I suppose the reason the name might be a bit less familiar amongst the sort of the toddlers and the other people who go out protesting about trees and the rest of it is because they were just around for a very short period of time. But Jack Bruce went on to do an extraordinary solo work that's, that's really been underappreciated. So uh, just... Very interesting. Um, out of the Storm, for example, that Jack did. One of my favourite Scottish musicians. And then Clapton went the other way. Everyone knows Eric Clapton, even though in some ways some of the most interesting stuff he did was in the cream rather than after. Here's Joshua on the line uh, from London, but about Iraq. Joshua, welcome. 
You right there, George? Yes, good. Good. I'm enjoying the show. I hope you are. Uh, very much so, very much so, yeah. Thank you. I was going to ask you, George, um, do you think that George W. Bush invaded Iraq out of revenge, revenge to, to avenge his father because Saddam Hussein tried to have him assassinated? No, I, 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 I honestly don't. Uh, uh, there, there, there were three main reasons for the mm. Bush and Blair attack on Iraq, and the last of them was the most important. The first was for Israel. Iraq had to be broken because it was a potential leader for the Arab world. It had a science base, it had weapons, it had powerful armed forces, it had a, 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 a cohesive and powerful central state, and it had an Arab nationalist ideology, which I believe they held quite sincerely. But that was the least important reason. The second reason was oil. As Donald Rumsfeld put it, it's not our fault that God put America's oil under other people's countries. He really did say that, folks. And of course oil, controlling oil production, oil distribution, the price of oil, is an important goal uh, of uh, the imperial countries. But that was only the second most important reason. The most important reason was quite simply to demonstrate the overwhelming power of the United States as we entered the 21st century. The overwhelming power of the new American century to act as a warning to Russia, which had only then just begun getting back to its feet and recovering its uh, national dignity and its determination to return its prestige in the world and to demonstrate to China that was then just a twinkle in uh, Jyoti Brar's eye uh, that no growth of China would be tolerated that threatened the hegemony of the United States. That, I believe, was the overwhelmingly the most important reason for the invasion of Iraq. Joshua, thanks for that call. Sarkar is in Glasgow, wants to talk Trump and Obama. Go ahead, Sarkar. Hi, George. Good evening. I'm so happy I could speak to you. I tried this last week also, and I'm so happy both it's you and Adam busy, are busy today. Switch, switchboard. Go ahead. Uh, George, it's a very important question. I have seen, first of all, I'm calling up not because I'm a blind Trump supporter or a blind Trump hater. But of late, the hypocrisy shown by some of the Democrats with relations to what's happening with the Ukraine investigations, the potential Democratic presidential nominee, I don't know what is his rating right now, he was leading the charts, Mr. Joe Biden, mm. when he chats about Trump should be getting impeached for his Ukraine dealings, if I look at his own son's history, what he is doing, how he was discharged for not being in a fit for military purpose, and the number of times he visited Ukraine as Barack Obama's vice president. 13 times. when Ukraine got annexed. 13 times in 26 got, months. Exactly. And what right has he got to talk about impeachment of Trump? And secondly, George, I might not sound very, you know, pleasing to people when I say this, the great predecessor of Trump. Barack Obama, Nobel Prize winner. Yes, you can say he won the Nobel Prize right a few well, months he, in his that, first presidency. Yeah, that, but that was before he even started. Exactly. And in 2011, means, believe me, George, I'm not stating any conspiracy theories. 
He not only made Iraq worse, he incinerated Libya, he destroyed Syria, and guess what? He's the one who's a beacon of hope for the liberals and the Democrats. I'm not a fan of Trump, but given the option between two evils, ask any sensible man, would you prefer someone who destabilized three countries and literally made a mess of Middle East for the unforeseeable future, or someone who just keeps on giving hollow threats? What would you say, uh, what would you say George? Please uh, let me know. Adam, I'd like to hear Adam's views also. Adam, over to you. Well, Trump hasn't started a single new war. He's kind of sort of trying to wind down things in Syria. Turkey, a NATO member, certainly wants him to do so. He hasn't said much about Hong Kong. That's not to say that American interests aren't active there, but he doesn't care about it. He cares about... Uh, the trade war in the old-fashioned mercantile context, neo-mercantile to be sure. And most of all, look what he's doing with the North Koreans. And yes, there's always going to be some bumps in the road, as there were this week with the North Koreans walking out of talks. But look at all of the back and forth between Reagan and Gorbachev in the late 80s, uh, before everyone was happy family. I think that we're going to see a real peace break out in North Korea. And the only person who dared to do it is Donald Trump. Was it because of his ego? Quite possibly. But it takes these kinds of men of action to sometimes get things done. So North Korea, an elongated but I think ultimately successful peace process, he hasn't started any wars. He dialed back a war on Iran and then sacked John Bolton. Uh, whatever's going on in Venezuela seems to have fizzled out. Another failure for John Bolton, personally speaking. Trump doesn't seem to instinctively want war. And the longer the Trump presidency goes on, the longer it becomes apparent that the things he said on the campaign trail in 2016 were actually his sincere views and the various bellicose statements he sometimes make is sort of one of the occupational hazards of the job that he got elected for. Well, he does. I mean, this is uh, an extension of his business uh, style of work, isn't it? Yeah. That, uh, that you, you go in threatening uh, to, to bring the house down, you bully, you browbeat, you maybe even bribe, uh, and uh, you make the other fellow think that you're actually crazy and you may well walk away mm -hmm. and the deal that everyone's been hoping for, working for, will collapse. Isn't that his style of doing business? And that's what he's done with Korea. You could argue it's already visible that that's what he did with Iran. He mm -hmm. plainly has no intention of going to war with Iran. No. And who would? Uh, uh, I mean, you really would have to be Hillary insane, Clinton uh, to do that or be Hillary Clinton same thing um, same thing uh, so the 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 style of fire and brimstone is really just a cover for okay let's fin let's uh, let's talk Turkey and let's do a deal yes I feel sure that he'll do the same with the Iranian leaders that he has already done with the Koreans I feel the exact same way, and I think this would be a good opportunity to address members of the left who are part of this audience, because there's one thing that they get wrong so much. They, war is good for business. War is terrible for business. What war is good for is it's a good very... For arms it's arms Yeah, it's a very small segment of business, none of which could survive on a genuine free market model. The arms business is the most subsidized yeah. cash cow in the world. Yeah. It makes French wine 
transfer for capitalism. Exactly. It makes the, the common agricultural policy, which pays the French farmers to make their wine, it makes that look downright libertarian in terms of economic terms. And so war is bad for any kind of normal business, small, medium, and even large, except for a business which could not possibly survive if they weren't paid in the money that is printed by governments in order to fight the wars which should have never been fought in the first place. So I think that if we can get past that hurdle of, oh, war is good for business, then we can talk realistically about an area where the anti-war left and the anti-war right can actually, you know, break bread together. Sarkar, thanks uh, very much for the call. Don't be a stranger. Uh, hello, George, and hello, Adam. Hi there. It's always nice to talk with you. Welcome. Go, go ahead. Um, uh, first, I just want to make a point about um, Trump, that while he hasn't started any wars yet, he did kill uh, more people in drone strikes in nine months than Obama did in eight years. So that's just a fact we should keep in mind as well, that drone strikes have gone completely out of control under him. But anyway, I want to get to Brexit. Um, the whole issue of Brexit, I think that uh, uh, Bojo can't um, um, get a deal that isn't going to be a globalist um, EU deal that's basically going to keep uh, the UK in the EU, but in, in anything but name only. So I think the best um, left position on this is just to have a no deal Brexit. Mm -hmm. Because you can just negotiate a deal anyway, even after you leave. Well, exactly. Ex exactly so, Jared. And so many people on the left, or who would describe themselves as being on the left, have been absolutely unable to grasp that point, that the deal begins the day after you leave. That's when you negotiate a deal with the parties on the other side. I said, Adam, you heard it because you've been listening to this show for many years. Indeed. I said on the first Friday after the referendum, we should send them an email saying, we voted to leave, goodbye. We, for our part, intend no standard uh, that of uh, health and safety or work or labor standards that will be less than yours, no environmental policy that will be less than yours. We intend fully to cooperate with you on police, on terrorism and so on. We don't intend to impose any tariffs or barriers on you. We will not take discriminatory action against your citizens living here, and we assume you will reciprocate for our interests. We could have done that yep. three years ago, and by now we would have had a free trade agreement with the members of the EU, wouldn't we? 
Absolutely. I mean, by putting Theresa May in number 10 after Brexit, it, it's a bit like putting someone who's afraid of water in charge of being the lifeguard at an Olympic-sized swimming pool. She did everything she could, and it's becoming so apparent now under the Johnson uh, premiership that everything she did was to keep Britain in the EU, either in name or, uh, or, or, or in everything but name. Now that we've got Bojo in, he's given the EU what can only be described as a good faith deal. It's not perfect, I've had my criticisms of it, but the big monstrosities have been removed, and for them to just spit upon this deal as though they don't even want to embrace the concept of win-win. These same people that constantly criticize Trump, the same people that passive-aggressively insult China, the same people who think that the world begins in Finland and ends in Portugal, they don't even understand the concept of a good faith, equal partnership, and the way that the statements from Verhofstadt, from Juncker, from Tusk, and the others have been to Boris's deal, it makes it totally clear in terms of the actual facts on the ground that all of us saying that a clean break, a so-called no-deal WTO, WTO terms was the best option from the beginning, now the facts have borne that out. They could still do an 11th hour deal. The EU has been known to do that from time to time. But the sheer arrogance which with they've yeah, met Johnson's... Yeah, this is the point I was reading. making earlier yeah. about how much uglier now they mm -hmm. look even though Quite they so. looked in 2016. Now that we've come up uh, close to them, uh, their, their, their conduct, the arrogance with which they've conducted this last three years, the insulting way that they have dealt with, I mean, I'm the last person in the world to defend Theresa May, but, but leaving her in a corridor yes, and eating so. uh, her dinner on her own, and nope. I mean, the sheer disrespect, a country like my wife doesn't like this because she was born in the Netherlands, but I cannot refrain from saying so. To be lectured by the Netherlands, across which Hitler traveled faster than an Uber, uh, <laughs> who couldn't resist for four days, who trapped by their uh, abject surrender, uh, the hundreds of thousands of British soldiers at Dunkirk, it's really hard for me to take as a scholar, a student of the Second World War, because this week they were making wartime allusions uh, about um, Johnson being a kind of faux uh, Churchill. Well, if it wasn't for the real Churchill, um, they'd all be speaking German. Well, a lot of them practically are anyway. Uh, <laughs> Quite so. Now, monetizing dissent says Ginger Baker played with Fela Kuti. He sure did. A great socialist band leader. And he lived in Nigeria until the regime kicked him out. Is that a fact? He, well, he was building a studio in Nigeria and, and banned on the run by Wings was supposed to, uh, was supposed to record there, but uh, various things, and he was, he was playing polo, he was a keen polo player, one would have never guessed, uh, with the old regime, but then there was political trouble, uh, because he was the kind of person that was playing with the radical Fela Kute in the, in the music clubs by night, and by day he was playing polo with the people that would have preferred him dead in a ditch. To, to borrow a phrase, so that didn't work out. But no, that is fascinating. I never knew yeah, that. There's an American boxer. I saw Paul McCartney uh, issue a statement today 
about Ginger yes, Baker. Yes, he mentioned death, it. Yes. And he, he said that they had worked together, but I had no idea that Band on the Run was, was supposed to be made in Nigeria. There's a great film about Ginger that an American boxer called Jay Bulger, I believe that's pronounced it, only a few short years before his death, and you could already tell that the candle was burning briefer. It was called Beware of Mr. Baker. Um, I won't give anything away, but the director had his nose broken by a 78-year-old Mr. Baker with a walking stick, and that was just the beginning, so it's quite no, an interesting film. My old friend Mark Seddon, uh, who works for the United Nations General Secretary now, used to be the editor of Tribune. He tweeted on the death of, uh, uh, of Baker, beware Mr. Baker. Yes. And I didn't actually know what he meant. Now you've taught me and taught all of us. Uh, exactly uh, what you meant. He was a ferocious man, um, but... Violent. Yes, uh, there's, you, you can't deny that, and he didn't deny it. He, did, he was honest, though. I saw him once at a Q&A for this film at a cinema in Shaftesbury Avenue, and he, there was this, this all-too-woke Guardian journalist interviewing him, and he made mincemeat out of him. It's, all, it's online, and it was very funny, but there was an honesty about him, and he said many times that um, God is punishing me by keeping me alive and in a great deal of pain and retribution for all my past wickedness and so he, he was self-aware in his own way of a fascinating character from the first to the last and while he wasn't the easiest person to be around I do think the world is a bit poorer without him let that be a lesson to you all no everything must stop when a legend's on the line it's the legend that is Norma in Bristol Norma welcome back hello there's I'm no uh... echo there's no echo go ahead <laughs> I'm your token woman caller tonight. That's a fair point. That is a fair um, point. I'll have to work yeah. harder. Ginger Baker's to, uh, to, to promote uh, more women callers. Well, you're far from a token. You're a legend. So go ahead. It's only a comment, George. Yeah. Um, I learned so much on your programs, and I mean 70 or more, 17 or more nations tuning in tonight. Mm. But I've been watching the World Athletics over the last 10 days. Oh, yes. And it was very exciting and so good to see. And the comradeship between the competitors of the countries was really good um, of the different nations. But you see, both the programs, yours and the World Athletics, are truly international. Mm -hmm. But the World Athletics, George, because I'm getting so tired and old, was more relaxing. Ah, oh, well, I, I, I wish that we could have relaxed you more, but these big, big issues that we're oh, dealing yeah. with, it's quite hard to deal, you know, lightheartedly with them. I think the, the demise of, uh, of Baker has allowed Adam to spread his wings a bit more and show his musicality, yeah. uh, which uh, I was not myself uh, too aware of. But I haven't seen any of the athletics. In fact, as you were speaking, I realized that I'm way, way behind the times with athletics. The last time I used to follow athletics was the rivalry in the mile. Uh, not the mile, the 5,000, I think. Maybe even the 10,000 between Sebastian Coe and oh. Steve Ovet. That's oh. when I used to follow athletics. Oh, George. And a fella from the Northeast, Brendan. I forget his second name. 
And yeah, then there was Alan agree. Wells, who won, uh, he won a medal at the Moscow Olympics. I can still hear his missus shouting, come on, Alan, come on, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> no, That's no. old school, It's George. old school, but the old ones are the best, uh, Norma. Thank you. Oh, Brendan I... Foster it was from the uh, Brendan Northeast. Foster, that's yeah, right. Yeah, I remember him. Thank you so much for the call. You wait all night for one woman caller, and then another one comes along. Thanks for that, Norma. Here's Amanda in London. Amanda, welcome. Oh, hello. Good evening, Mr. Galloway. Good evening, Mr. Gary. Good evening. It's a great privilege to be able to speak with you. Thank you. I just wanted to thank you very much indeed for having a more balanced perspective on ch about China. My son has been studying Mandarin and has been at university in China, travelled all over China. He is engaged to a lovely Chinese girl. And I just wanted to say to you that there are over 100,000 Chinese students coming every year to Britain. Yeah. Over 70% of them are Mandarins, uh, are, are master students. They're putting a tremendous amount back into the economy, back into our universities. Mm -hmm. And I just think that nobody passes on the positive things about about China, which is I'm so glad that you and your earlier, com earlier contributor were doing. Well, Amanda, that is a, a wonderful call, and it is the last call of the evening. And I want to echo uh, that point that you make, uh, because I addressed a meeting, I think, last Saturday night in London, and quite a considerable number of the people in the audience were Chinese PhD students. And I speak often at... Uh, some of the best public schools. It's the, uh, one of the great ironies uh, of my life that I, I never get invited to speak at state schools. And if anyone did invite me, the local politicians would stymie it, to coin a phrase. But I do speak at these very expensive private schools, which in Britain are called public schools. Confused, you will be. Uh, and at those public schools, private schools, there are now huge numbers of Chinese students. China is a mighty and growing country. And here's something you didn't know about me, Amanda. My son and my daughter are also studying at Chinese school, studying Mandarin. And the reason is because by the time they grow up, it will be a tremendous asset to them to be fluent speakers of Mandarin. Indeed, my two-year-old child, who goes five days a week to a Chinese nursery in London, is actually more proficient in Chinese than in any of her other languages. She speaks English, Chinese, Indonesian, and Dutch, and she's only two and a half years old. But her best language is Chinese. And I've made that, my, and her mother, have made that investment precisely because we want them to be successful when they grow up, and that is a surefire way to be successful. Last word to you, Amanda. I think you're, you, couldn't be, you couldn't be more accurate, and I'm sure you'd be welcome with open arms at Winchester College. Well, I have been uh, several times I've spoken there, and I'm very, very grateful to you uh, for that call, uh, a very interesting glimpse Indeed. into the democratic uh, demographic of our listenership, viewership uh, of this. And you might not have expected that lady to have that point of view about uh, China. Adam, sadly, uh, we're running out of time. You and I 
Saturday, 19th October. That's right. At the Liner Hotel in Liverpool. Uh, maybe we'll say a few things about Ginger Baker there. I'm sure that the Jade Assembly and Brian Travers will be very interested in some of your anecdotes, I must say. Uh, I so can talk about music all night long. Be careful what you wish for. Well, I do wish for it. Saturday, 19th October, 7.30 at the Liner Hotel in Liverpool. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time in any of the same places and bring another viewer or listener with you.